1: Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
2: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Ride. It works fast.
3: Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. And I'm Charlotte. Charlotte Howard's back. Yeah. Welcome
2: back, Charlotte.
0: Thank you. It's good to be back.
3: It's wonderful to have you. I heard you moved to new offices with The Economist.
0: Yeah, we just moved to 54th and 3rd, and everyone talks about the death of Midtown, in particular Midtown East. But I have to say that I have been struck by the opportunities created by some businesses dying and some new businesses coming in. So right nearby, we have this food court that opened in the bottom of the Citigroup building that should, for all intents and purposes, really be a wasteland. And instead, it's incredibly dynamic and has delicious new restaurants and is always full. And there's a black seed bagel that's opening across the street. So Midtown Manhattan has its challenges, and I don't envy the people who own some of these really big empty office buildings nevertheless there are signs of life
2: wow a good new food court charlotte like what kind of an improvement is that to your quality of life because for me that would be pretty massive
0: (laughs) it's pretty huge i have to say that my bar is low so i count (laughs) any small new eatery as a big improvement to my daily quality of life but yeah this is big
3: fantastic and then we brought topics of course what do you have for us charlotte
0: I am a former health reporter and I used to write extensively about obesity and some of these new weight loss drugs and the enormous opportunity both commercially and for the world's health that they pose. And they... Raise all kinds of interesting questions about what insurers should cover, how we think about the role of free will versus medical treatment in some of these chronic conditions. So I'm looking forward to getting into it with you both.
2: Okay, that sounds fantastic. Wow. Me here, and you have a topic as well? So I was thinking that we could make this like a life sciences edition because. A company that we've never really discussed, but is really phenomenal and interesting is Moderna. Oh, That was basically nothing three years ago and is now just a juggernaut of sorts. And I would just love to know what you make of their rise. They've had a couple of stumbles and where you think that is all going. A life
3: science episode. I don't think we've ever done that.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: So Charlotte, Weight loss drugs and developments around these new drugs. Tell us more.
0: I think there can sometimes be a tendency to think about weight loss drugs as a niche issue. Right. But if you look at the data, it's just not. So about two-thirds of American adults are overweight or obese. Mm. Two-thirds. And more than one in three is obese. But it's not an American phenomenon. You see rising obesity rates around the world as countries get richer. You look to Saudi Arabia, to Mexico. There are all these places where obesity rates are on the rise. And in 2035, you could have 4 billion people around the world who are overweight or obese. Oh, that's just staggering. So if you think about the trajectory of how we've thought about disease in the past, for so long it was about fighting viral infections, about fighting communicable diseases. But going forward, it's really about managing chronic disease. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As people get older, as people get richer, this is a huge problem for individuals, and it's also a huge problem for governments because of the attendant costs.
2: And Charlotte, is it also right to think about obesity not only as a problem in and of itself, but also being associated with lots of other really problematic conditions, like heart disease and other things?
0: Exactly. So if you look across... Diseases that are caused by or exacerbated by obesity, they include diabetes, of course, which is probably well-known, but also raises the risk of cancer, of heart disease. It's just a really big deal.
3: And even COVID, Charlotte, if I remember right, the chances that you would get really sick and be hospitalized from COVID, I think, had a lot to do with chronic conditions like obesity.
0: That's absolutely true. That was borne out in the data around the world, that you had much worse rates of death for people who contracted COVID while also being obese. And the interesting thing about this as a health phenomenon is when we think about cancer, or even when we think about high cholesterol levels, there's no blame associated with those diseases generally. Yes, smoking can bring on cancer, but largely we see cancer as something that just deserves medical treatment. Mm -hmm. And the conversation around obesity has always been different because it has largely for many, many years rested on the premise that this is up to the individual to manage, Mm -hmm. that if they were to exercise and if they were to eat better, obesity rates would go down. And what we know now through years of research is that it is really hard medically to lose weight on your own. Your body has evolved over millions of years to keep weight on, not to lose it. (laughs) And it works incredibly hard to keep that weight on. And so the question is, what is a medical intervention that can both improve the quality of life and improve the long-term health outcomes for people who are obese and potentially be a huge boon to companies that develop these medications. And after decades of really no progress, we now have these drugs that do have a really big impact on weight
3: loss. Right. So how do the drugs work in the first place? I seem to remember there was an earlier class of drugs that was not very effective? Mm. The
0: long story short is the way these work is they copy hormones that make you feel full. People mm. don't eat as much when they are taking these drugs. Mm-hmm. And the impact is big. So you might have about 15% weight loss, for instance. And right. the Eli Lilly drug might have an even higher share of weight loss. So that's incredibly dramatic for the people who take these medicines.
2: I confess my first reaction to this whole story is just what a quantum leap this is in healthcare. (laughs) And I think it's worthwhile just thinking about, A, how it happened in such a discontinuous and unexpected way, and then all the ways it plays out through the healthcare system, because we are just now beginning to see the onset of this. And because it is about obesity, there are a set of really interesting payment issues around these drugs. And so the question to me is, how do we think about garnering the biggest benefits for society in a way that actually allows it to happen in a vaguely fiscally responsible way and allows these companies to benefit from this remarkable innovation? I don't know, Felix, what do you make of it?
3: That's one of the really interesting questions. Should it be covered? How quickly should it be covered? It's quite pricey. I think the Novo Nordisk drug is about $1,300 a month or so. And one thing to keep in mind, which I think is sometimes surprising to some of the patients, is that once you start taking it, this is for life. This is not something that you can take for a little while. Or if you go off the drug completely, there's a very big probability that you go back to your original weight. Novo Nordisk says that about 40 million Americans are covered out of the 110 million who are considered obese. And to your earlier point, Charlotte, it still has a little bit this ring, well, should we really cover it because there's some sense of personal responsibility, even though the science is very clear now that this has nothing to do with willpower, that it's just the biology that is working against people in ways that, Almost no one can really fight.
0: If you think about this from the drug company's perspective, they have created drugs that work and you take them forever. Yes, <laughs> This is the amazing market opportunity offered by these drugs, and it's a huge mass market. So it's not surprising to me that Novo Nordisk's valuation has doubled in the past two years. But if you think about oncology, which is where a lot of drug makers have invested that model is around orphan drugs. So you find something that really works for a very, very small population. It's really targeted and the drugs cost a ton. This is not an orphan population. This is a third of Americans. So I do think the pricing question is particularly interesting in the American context as Medicare begins what is this huge experiment which has never existed before that it is going to start negotiating some drug prices. Mm. So if you look across European markets, governments have been negotiating drug prices forever. Right. That has been anathema within the American market to date, but The Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year, did include that Medicare can start negotiating. So these drugs later in the decade will probably be part of that negotiating process. And it will be fascinating, I think, for some of these huge blockbusters to see how that unfolds. Will the political will? Remain to continue negotiating drug prices. Mm. It's hugely controversial. Drug companies to date have been really successful at fighting this kind of thing, and they're working hard to try to repeal it.
2: I don't know if either of you are concerned that this drug could end up exacerbating a lot of issues that we struggle with about body image broadly. If this drug becomes widely used as effectively a way to suppress one's appetite, there is something in my gut which says, wow, this could lead. Not just to what you said, Felix, which is people being on it for a long time and then stopping and finding that it all goes away. But do you all see this as an unalloyed good, or do you see the potential for problems? At the core, what's really tough about obesity and what's
3: tough about the medical question is this asymmetry. It's relatively easy to gain weight, and then losing the weight that you have gained is incredibly difficult no one's willpower is strong enough to really do it. Think for a moment what that really means and how we would think about this issue in a different context. So say we had a deep hole in the community and we knew if you fall into it, it's incredibly difficult to climb out. What would be the natural response? The natural response would be to make big investments, making sure that no one falls in. That's the Part that I'm missing in the conversation. I'm all in favor of helping the people who have gained a lot of weight, who have all kinds of health issues as a result of obesity. Mm -hmm. The numbers are just striking. 50% of adults who are considered obese, they meet the criteria of obesity at age five. It happens incredibly early in your life. And so preventing from falling into the hole, that's the part of the whole equation that I'm really missing. We should make people aware and we should, teach and train people to be really careful not to fall into the hole in the first place. And then if it happens to someone, then of course I'm all in favor of helping and the drugs are really great news. But given the asymmetry in the biology that it's so easy to gain, that it has to do with lifestyle questions and the kinds of foods that are available in your community, the kinds of foods that people typically end up eating... Why isn't there more emphasis on prevention?
0: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point, Felix, and it underscores the broader challenge that those who want to limit obesity rates have had to date. It's kind of like if you developed a treatment for lung cancer, but then you let tobacco advertising continue apace and you allowed flavored cigarettes and tobacco marketing to kids. There hasn't been a commensurate change on the front end that you've seen on the back end. And I think for a few reasons, one is that this question of free will and responsibility has always been tangled up.
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Two, It's not that easy. There's not a real business model that I've seen that's that successful. I mean, you have Weight Watchers and whatever, but it's not that big a business model around prevention of obesity. There's a lot of money riding on the industries that contribute to obesity. (laughs) Michelle Obama, when she was in the White House, she really tried to make childhood obesity a big thing. Much of what she tried to do was neutered through lobbying from food and beverage companies. Mm -hmm. You have both the debate over personal responsibility— You have intense lobbying from companies that have an interest in limiting regulation. Mm -hmm. There's ample debate over which regulations would be most effective. It's not as straightforward as a tobacco tax, for instance. So I think all of these factors mean that it just has been really hard to date to come up with some kind of intervention to limit obesity rates. Hmm.
2: I think that's exactly the nature of my ambivalence as well, which is not just that something is broken down. But as these drugs become more widespread... Any efforts to limit it will abate, naturally. (laughs) And, you know, I hesitate to say this because it almost sounds puritanical, which is we don't want to give license to this behavior and then say it's all okay because we can fix it later. Hmm. You have young, impressionable populations talking about ways to regulate their appetite using effectively pharmacological efforts as opposed to self-initiated ones. I totally see why the personal responsibility trope is completely wrong-headed but I'm still struggling with some of these basic ambivalences about the profusion of this drug into a consumer space where you know it will get driven to usage in so many places beyond any kind of narrow potential obesity use.
3: you know me here. The part that is difficult in this conversation is you want to have two opposing thoughts in your mind at one and the same time, right. On the one hand, once someone suffers from obesity, You want to do everything you possibly can to help that person. Exactly. And at the same time, it also has to be true that we should make a really serious effort to limit the number of people who get to be in that condition in the first place. And we do have tools. So think of a really generous subsidy on healthy foods that are good for you to eat so that the economics of better, healthier food are completely clear. If you are on a limited budget and you go to the supermarket, the best way to shop for your family is just to buy everything that is healthy. On top of that, we know that if it comes to predicting health outcomes, fitness is actually not the same as obesity. And you can be fit and you can lead a pretty healthy life even though you might struggle with your weight. Exactly. We think, well, once you've gained a lot of weight, what's the use of you to go to the gym or to go on a walk or do any sort of physical exercise? No, in particular, if you struggle with your weight, that becomes super, super important. We have quite a few policy instruments
2: that would allow us to be
3: more proactive.
2: Yeah. I think that's all right and true, Felix, but I don't think that's the equilibrium we're going to head towards. You're charting a path which says we simultaneously do these policy levers that we know are good, and then we also have these abilities medically and pharmacologically, which are fantastic, and we deploy them simultaneously. If that were true, that would be great. It's entirely conceivable to me that there is this sense in which the pharmacological approach to the problem will come to dominate every other solution. Because we've already seen how hard it is to implement those solutions. Yes. And then it retards yeah. those preventive efforts in some kind of odd, weird way. It, it need not, but it could. And th- that's the nature of, I think, the ambivalence I'm feeling.
0: It's a fascinating subject for all the reasons that you just articulated, that it's both exciting and worrisome. And also it fits within this broader reality that a person's health outcomes depend on so many different factors. So it's the person's choices. It's the person's genetics. It's the person's environment. Mm -hmm. And so I think the next decade, as these drugs ramp up in their availability, as insurers figure out how to cover them, as companies come up with their proposals to regulators, as parents talk Mm -hmm. about these drugs with their kids, all these debates are going to be playing out on the scale that we really just haven't seen before. It's pretty unprecedented, actually, Exactly, right. to have a condition that affects so many people and is enmeshed with these kind of broader cultural questions.
3: Since we can negotiate now with the companies about the drug prices, whether these negotiations could be used for prevention also... There are really simple things we can do. For instance, we know that ultra-processed food is in part problematic because the companies take all the water out of that food. That slows down the rate at which you will feel full, and as a result, you typically end
2: up overeating. That's a very creative solution, Felix, which is to use the government bargaining power, which is now newfound in the U.S. setting, to make sure that proceeds go in the way we would like them to
0: if you think about why insurers didn't cover weight loss drugs in the past, is they didn't do much.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah.
0: And now right. you just have this proven effect. And that's, to me, what sets it apart.
2: Yeah, Yeah.
1: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack
3: So, we hear Moderna. What's on your mind?
2: As you know well, Moderna was one of the major vaccine providers during COVID. It is only a 10, 12 year old company. It began as a venture funded company. It was considered up until 2019 as a company that was quite aggressive in its claims. It was considered as somebody who was promising, but very, very speculative. Mm-hmm. In the course of about 12 months, it went from a market capitalization of $5 billion to about $150 billion. Oh, and by the way, from basically zero revenues to approximately 20 billion in revenues. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm. We
2: have never seen anything like that before. So over the course of two years, they had $20 billion of revenue per year and collectively had around $20 billion of profits over those two years. And of course, now there are some interesting questions that face it as COVID vaccines come down. Mm -hmm. It is just this massive one-hit wonder so far. What do you think happens to companies when they go through that kind of trajectory?
0: Well, I think the one-hit wonder analogy is a good one. We can think of Moderna as the boy band of pharma (laughs) in some ways. So there are a few things that happen along the way. You have... Mistakes, or you have fights, and you don't give credit to the backstage manager who was early on in your career. We've seen that play out with Moderna. Mm -hmm. They have had a variety of issues with who owns the rights to different technologies that were within its mRNA vaccine. You have had a battle with the NIH. It paid a multi. Million dollar settlement to the National Institutes of Health earlier this year because, of course, Moderna developed these vaccines with the support of Operation Warp Speed in the really dark days of COVID 19. The question is, how much credit, and who owns the rights to some of these technologies. And then you also have questions of what happens as you move from being supported by the public sector to commercial coverage. Moderna is not alone. Pfizer is doing this as well. Mm -hmm. As you move from the government purchasing lots of vaccines to commercial coverage, you can raise the price of the drugs. And then there's the question... Can you come up with something else that is going to sustain the company going forward? And I think the answer to that is yes, but it's not going to be to really hammer this analogy. It's not going to be the top hit. It's going to be the number 98 in the Billboard Top 100. I'm really (laughs) aging myself now. But these are going to be drugs that might not be blockbusters and probably will not be blockbusters on the scale that you had when you had a global pandemic. And so that causes managerial issues. Mm -hmm. You invest to scale up, and then you might have to really restructure as you adapt to a different market size.
3: Interim development is really interesting to me. So they're predicting R&D expenditures alone of roughly $4.5 billion. In an environment where the big government purchases go away, as you pointed out, Charlotte, that means probably a floor of $5 billion. I think Wall Street expects more like 6 or $7 billion. But you basically go from being incredibly profitable right. to now, are they making a loss? Are they not making a loss? How quickly will the different drugs come along? I think things look pretty okay on the skin cancer front. I think the RSV vaccine is maybe a little bit a bigger question. Mm -hmm. People are thinking about combinations of, say, a flu shot and an RSV vaccine rolled into one. Maybe there's some COVID vaccine on top of everything there. So there might be combinations that don't have an exact equivalent in the marketplace. But we go from this once-in-a-lifetime, just amazing speed, amazing scale, just keep this in perspective, for the Spanish flu, it took a little over 10 years to even identify the strand of virus. It took basically forever. And in this case, warp speed was exactly the right name. We went from knowing that there was a really serious chance of a global pandemic to then having a vaccine in a very short period of time. But that is not the game they can play going forward, even though the markets might be quite big. Say the market for melanoma is actually quite a big market, but if you then think, oh, maybe Moderna gets a third or a fourth of that market, then the numbers are not that astounding.
2: Yeah. I think the thing that strikes me about this is there is a real technological breakthrough here, which is messenger RNA is a remarkable new way to develop vaccines and to develop drugs. And that is potentially transformational. But to your point, they don't have a monopoly on it, and they're going to be competing with lots of people with it. And I think to your point, Charlotte, I think the fascinating thing to me is there is this question of these trajectories of companies that are so astronomic, it almost feels like it is even more difficult to grow that way than it is to grow in a more linear way. And all those problems that arise in boy bands of like <laughs> conflict and tension and it never being as big or as good as it was at that time— That is what I really wonder about playing out inside Moderna and what happens to a company when they go back from being born at 180 miles an hour to kind of chugging along at 55 miles an hour (laughs) and seeing how that changes that company and if they're able to make that transition, which is way harder than growing into that scale and scope with a little bit more time.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And I also am struck by the difference in how Moderna rides this versus the likes of Pfizer. So Pfizer, of course, was a company with a rival vaccine to Moderna's giant established American pharmaceutical company. And in addition to the revenue gain for Pfizer, one of the big things that it benefited from was a total shift in the public's perception of the reputational Merits of a pharma company. So mm. they went from being evil, detested, to one of the most respected companies around. And the people within Pfizer really note that and are grateful for the credit they think they deserve for having helped develop this drug that helped transform the trajectory of COVID 19 around the world. But of a company Pfizer's size, it's just not going to have the same roller coaster effect.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. In an odd way, I confess that I think the right outcome here would probably be if Moderna had a market cap that was more reasonable. It currently, for example, has a market cap of $50, $60 billion. This coming year in 2023, maybe they'll do 5 or $6 billion of sales because of continued COVID vaccine rollouts. If you think there's something distinctive and special within Moderna, you'd almost want them to be acquired by someone else and then have them become part of a larger pharma company. But at current levels, it's going to be hard for that to happen. So then That's they right. have to yeah. go through this down loop of the roller coaster in order to kind of get to the other end. And that is going to be tough, I think, for them. Right. Yeah. The thing I love about both these stories is there is just remarkable technological change combined with just remarkable business backgrounds. And my instinct is that watching Moderna and watching these obesity drugs over the next two years and five years is going to be absolutely fascinating. Almost as good as the boy bands. <laughs>
3: All right, and we have recommendations. Charlotte, what do you have for us?
0: I had two recommendations, one slightly more useful than the other. <laughs> My colleague tonight is going to go see the sign in Sidney Brustein's Window, which is at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and I think will be really interesting. I'm going to a middle school production of The Pirates of Penzance, so I wouldn't recommend that to <laughs> our <laughs> our listeners, but the band production seems good. And then if you find yourself in that food court that I mentioned on 53rd and Lex... yes. Go to Mazidar Bakery and get either a slice of cheesecake, which tastes like air and is so delicious,
2: Ooh, okay, or
0: a salty chocolate chip cookie.
3: Oh, They're really good.
2: Both sound fantastic. A trip to the wow. East it is.
3: Yeah. Felix, what do you have? I would like to recommend the latest book by Richard Powers called Bewilderment. And I don't know if this ever happens to you, if I really like an artist I'm nervous for them when they come out with the next thing. Mm. And I loved Overstory, the previous book, so much. It had everything I was looking for in a book that I thought, oh, my God, is he going to do it again? Is it going to be the same? It's almost like me being nervous about Rihanna's next music release. Can she really (laughs) live up to my expectations? It's like, oh, nerve-wracking. And then sure enough, when I started Bewilderment, it didn't catch on right away somewhere in the middle of the book, there is this incredible Richard Powers magic. There's just enough science in there to make it interesting and semi-believable. And then you stretch the science in a way that I think has just to do with pure imagination and pure joy of thinking about what else might be true, what else might be happening. And so the book is in part thinking about life not in our universe, but in other universes and how that relates to the lives we lead here on this particular planet. Mm. But this combination of it sounds a little science and then it's just incredible imagination at one and the same time, that is just something that I think he does better than anyone else I know. So wow. I will gladly recommend this one as well, even if you liked Overstory to begin with, Richer Powers' Bewilderment, definitely worth a read.
2: That sounds great. Great. So I have two recommendations. One is a little life sciency, which is in a media landscape that's very tough. One of the most interesting media companies of the last decade, I think, has been this really niche one called Stat News. Oh, and they just cover yes. healthcare and pharma. And wow, do they produce great content. And do they have what seems like a great business model. So I would recommend Stat News to anyone who wants to maybe turn away from their devices and start learning about life sciences. It's a great place to begin. And the second is I've gotten more and more interested in fiction that talks about business. Okay. The world of fiction is often separated from the world of business, but when they intersect, it's pretty spectacular. And one example of that is White Tiger, which is by Arvind Adiga, which is an amazing novel. But the one I want to recommend is this little novella, which is 100 pages long, literally 100 pages long, by an Indian author whose name is Vivek Shanbhag. And the book is called Gachar Gochar. And if you want a portrait of the rise of the Indian middle class, the tension in a family that's caused by business, you cannot get anything better. And you can literally polish it off in about two and a half hours. So Gutscher Gochar by Vivek Shanbhag. If you're interested in fiction that actually thinks a little bit hard about business, I can't recommend a better place to begin. And you don't have to wade through 600 pages of Woodenbrooks to get a good business saga you can get it in literally 100 pages with Vivek Chamba.
3: excellent and this was it for today thank you everyone for listening this was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective